Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. This week we're going to cover a similar disaster to one we've already covered, just a bit smaller. It's time to cover an explosion. Specifically, the West Texas Fertilizer Plant Explosion. So let's start with the town this takes place in, West Texas. The town's name is West. Also, West Texas is not actually in West Texas. It's in north-central-ish East Texas, about an hour south of the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area. People in the town call it West, Texas, so it doesn't get confused with actual West Texas, or the directional West Texas, not the town West Texas. I know it is confusing. We are not at any point talking about actual West Texas. We are talking about the town West, Texas. It was officially founded as a town on June 11, 1892, after about 30 years of people living in the area and several businesses flourishing around the town. The town was not named after the direction, but after the man who owned the land and what would be the town's first postmaster, Thomas West. So it was his last name, not the direction of the town from any direction. Throughout the 1800s and 1900s, the town grew, not super rapidly, but somewhat, primarily with Czech immigrants. West Texas still has a subset of the population that speaks Czech fluently. Most of the business in West is a general mercantile and farming work. Pretty similar to, you know, most of the rest of the area around Texas. That is where the West Fertilizer Plant comes in. The West Fertilizer Plant began construction in 1961 and officially opened in 1962. They were well known throughout the town providing fertilizer, grain, and a bunch of other random farming supplies the primarily rural town needed to keep farms running. It was near downtown, so stuff, buildings and whatnot, had been built nearby. There hadn't been any problems, so they built a high school and middle school and a playground and an apartment complex and a nursing home nearby, you know, the normal stuff for a small town. It was a normal part of life in West. There were actually two companies located at the fertilizer plant site. There was a Dare Grain Inc., which bought and sold bulk grain shipments, obviously considering their name, and then there was the West Fertilizer Company, which bought and sold fertilizer, sold things like barbed wire, fencing material, baling twine, replacement parts, pesticides, weeds control, all that kind of stuff that you need to help keep a farm operational and running well. They also rented out some farming equipment, and they also did the farming for some of the local uh, farmers, plowing, things like that. Stuff that they needed help with, they would rent out and do on contract, basically. Essentially, if you needed to do some farming in West, you went to West Fertilizer Company for probably at least a portion of it. The fertilizer plant half was two buildings. There was a warehouse that had a shop and an office area and stuff like that. That's where they kept the pesticides and weed killer and stuff similar to that for farmers to buy. The second building was where the fertilizer was stored. This is the building we're going to focus on for, well, obvious reasons. Inside the fertilizer building was ammonium nitrate and several other various types of fertilizers, as well as a seed room that stored seeds that were either in season that they'd hop out for sale, or seeds that were out of season that they would have on hand for the next time they were in season, and it also stored some other random assortment of stuff. 
So those of you who have been listening for a while will no doubt remember the Beirut explosion episode. That explosion and this explosion have the same primary explosive material, ammonium nitrate. Just because it's been a while since we talked about it, I'm going to redo the ammonium nitrate explanation again because it's very much going to be extremely important for this episode. So what exactly is ammonium nitrate? Ammonium nitrate is the result of ammonia and nitric acid with the ammonia as a gas and nitric acid in a concentrated liquid form. It's used in several things, but primarily it is fertilizer and high explosives. It is a white crystal solid in a pearl shape. It often comes in bags. Occasionally will come in giant bulk, but not usually unless it's being used for fertilizer. And now normally, ammonium nitrate by itself is not necessarily explosive unless combined with something else such as TNT or some type of fuel oil like diesel or racing fuel or gasoline or something like that. But that can change with the introduction of a fire. So one thing you have to understand is ammonium nitrate itself, like the actual pearls themselves, is not flammable. However, it will melt and mix with other flammable material, giving it the appearance of burning. The other thing it does is when it melts is allow for other things that weren't burning for to before to begin to burn. That is because ammonium nitrate is an oxidizer. So it's providing oxygen to things nearby that are burning. So it'll take a small fire and make it really big because it provides a whole bunch of oxygen. And as that fire starts to burn hotter and hotter, the ammonium nitrate begins to melt and decompose much faster. What happens when the ammonium nitrate starts to melt, it becomes more unstable as it allows it to mix with any available combustibles or fuels around. So it's not just like gasoline or diesel or things like that. It can also mix with other combustibles that are burning around it and making it more and more uh, unstable and more and more, more and more prone to explosions. Now, what you need in order for it to explode is containment. You need to have the ammonium nitrate contained within something that will allow that pressure to build before it detonates. Because without the containment, there's not enough pressure there. It will just continue to burn and it will burn off. Or it won't burn off, but it will continue to burn until there's no more fuel available left to burn or it gets extinguished. You have to have something that provides good containment like a steel container or a rail car or a wooden box or things like that. Sometimes ammonium nitrate itself will have enough of a, it, there's enough self-containment there for it to uh, detonate similar to most likely what happened in the Beirut explosion was there's so much ammonium nitrate there that it was able to be contained inside itself and was hit with a large enough shock from the fireworks or whatever going off that it allowed it to detonate. And we know this because there have been numerous detonations of ammonium nitrate throughout history that were caused by fires in a contained area. We also know this because there have been numerous fires that have occurred in the vicinity of ammonium nitrate that haven't detonated. Uh, one recently was a Weaver Fertilizer Plant um, in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, where Wake Forest is. Uh, it burned for a good portion of a day that ammonium nitrate never detonated. That's because the ammonium nitrate was not sufficiently contained, therefore it did not detonate. 
So the process for that detonation is the ammonium nitrate begins to deflagrate through the decomposed substance, and the containment of the propagating pressure wave leads to a detonation transition. So it's basically, it starts at a deflagration, which is slower than the speed of sound. It's subsonic. And because of the containment, it builds up the pressure and builds up the pressure until it starts to go supersonic, which becomes a detonation. And one of the issues here is, if the ammonium nitrate is by itself in like a steel container like a rail car, and it doesn't have anything around it that can burn, and it has no process of becoming contaminated, it will not detonate. If it is by itself in like a steel container, there's nothing to contaminate it, it will not detonate. There will be no explosion. It will just sit there and melt. And if it becomes uh, compromised, it might be contaminated with something else, but it's unlikely. So where that falls into is if it's contained inside, say, a semi-truck container, like uh, the back of a semi-truck in a tractor trailer, and it's in bags in boxes. Both the boxes and the bags are flammable they will contaminate the ammonium nitrate. If it has enough of a shock, say the gas tank ruptures, or it gets hit by something, or whatever, if there's a big enough shock, it, will it can then detonate because that ammonium nitrate has been decomposed, or has been contaminated by the boxes burning and the bags burning. Now, if you just have bulk ammonium nitrate in like a rail car that's completely full, it's completely sealed off, the ammonium nitrate will melt, but it will not detonate because there is no contamination. It has not um, gone to an unstable place that will allow it to detonate. So basically what I'm trying to say is storing ammonium nitrate in flammable containers and in flammable um, storage places is generally a bad idea and should probably be avoided in the future. I say it should be avoided in the future because that's very much not what happened here. But we'll get there. Now, there are two grades of ammonium nitrate, technical grade and fertilizer grade. They are exact same compound chemically, both are NH4 and O3, just technical grade ammonium nitrate is more porous to allow for the absorption of fuel to use for explosives. So technical grade is used for explosives, um, mining, cording, um, building, it's used as a really cheap explosive because it's really easy to get and it's really easy to make. It's also regularly used um, by terrorists and terrorist attacks like the Oklahoma City bombing in April of 1995 and the 2011 Delhi bombings in India. Both of those used ammonium nitrate. Um, it's really easy to get a hold of. It's really easy to make an explosive out of. The ammonium nitrate in West Texas was fertilizer grade because it was not being used as an explosive and it was going to be used as fertilizer. So it's less porous. It doesn't need to take in that fuel oil to make it an effective explosive. Not that it made it any sort of difference here, but that's the two. Di that's the differences between the two types of uh, ammonium nitrate, the two grades of ammonium nitrate. So let's go back to the fertilizer building. The fertilizer building was a wood structure with a wood roof covered with asphalt shingles. On the north end of the building was a seed room, which we talked about earlier, has all the different kinds of seeds in it, and also some baling twine and fencing stuff and stuff like that that farmers could come to buy if they were working on stuff around their farm. This is also where they had some golf carts and some other kind of electrical-related stuff. On the other end of the fertilizer building was the fertilizer bulk storage area. This is where the ammonium nitrate was stored. 
It was actually stored in two different places within that half of the building. Uh, it was in two plywood bins along the west wall of the building. Those were two smaller bins. Or the main bin on the north side of the building just behind the seed room. So it's on the north-ish end, but it's not quite in the seed room. That'll be important later. The key thing is that both areas of storage, so the two smaller bins and then the main bin, were all made of plywood. The main ammonium nitrate bin was about 8 feet wide, about 20 feet long, and about 30 feet high, and was not completely full of ammonium nitrate because they had had a collapse of one of the walls because they'd had so much ammonium nitrate in there that they had to reinforce it, and then they never really filled it all the way up because they were afraid that it was going to collapse again. So it was never completely full of ammonium nitrate and wasn't quite full this time. At the time of the fire and subsequent explosion, there was about 40 to 60 tons of ammonium nitrate in the building in total. So that's between all three uh, bins. So that brings us to April 17th, 2013, which was a Wednesday. It had been a fairly normal Wednesday, normal business day, whole nine yards. On the, that evening at around 7.30 p.m., the first reports of smoke started to come in from civilians in the area of the fertilizer plant and the first 911 call was made about a fire. Now, the first reports were just of a smell of smoke in the area and possibly some haze coming out of the top of the elevator in the actual fertilizer plant. Nobody saw any flames or anything, and there was actually a police officer in the area who smelled smoke at a park across the street from the plant. And he was driving around trying to find where the smoke was coming from because he didn't think there should be any smoke in the area. And he came across, across a civilian who came up to him and said, hey, the fertilizer plant is on fire. When he drove over there, he could see smoke coming out of the cupola on top of the fertilizer plant, which is the elevator. So inside the cupola is a conveyor belt with some uh, bu buckets on it. They scoop the ammonium nitrate out of the bulk arrival comes in either train or truck, takes it up to the top of the elevator, and then deposits it in various different PVC pipes, which then feed to the three different locations that the ammonium nitrate could be stored, or if it's another fertilizer, another bulk fertilizer, it'll deposit to those areas where those are stored. It's basically a gravity-fed storage system. When he got there, he could see smoke coming from out of the top of the cupola, which makes sense because it's the highest point in the building. It's also some of the only ventilation in the building. The first smoke that he sees when he arrives on the scene is a very thin, gray, almost white-colored smoke, which indicates a well-ventilated fire, meaning that the fire was still small and had a significant amount of oxygen available to support burning. So... In this normal cases, when you get a really big fire, if it's well ventilated, the smoke will be more of a light in color. If it gets to be bigger in the house, it will be limited via oxygen until the roof collapses or whatever and provides a lot of oxygen. When the fire is in its early stages, then it's going to have a lot of oxygen available because it hasn't consumed the oxygen in the room. So because he's seeing this light gray whitish smoke coming out it indicates that the fire was in its early stages at that point and it still had a lot of oxygen available not long after he got there so he arrived on one side and drove around to the other side of the building he began to see flames through the wall going from the first floor up to the second floor in the northeast corner of the building 
This puts the fire originating somewhere in the seed room. Now, we don't know exactly where because it's possible that the fire could have been burning for a significant amount of time in the seed room and had ventilated on its side, and that's why there was the hazy smoke because it still had a lot of oxygen available. It's possible that it could have originated on that northeast side. We just don't know, and, well, the building's blown up, so we'll never know. After seeing the fire, he notified dispatch that they had a working fire and went off to do crowd control after notifying the West Volunteer Fire Department. The fire department in West was entirely volunteer and was relatively small. They only had about 20 members or so, give or take. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. The first due engine was headed in the direction of the fertilizer plant at 7.37 p.m. The first two engines on scene had only five firefighters between the two of them. Five firefighters is what is generally recommended to man one engine, let alone two engines. It was going to be difficult to manage this fire, especially one that's already sowing in a building that has a known explosion risk. Well, it has a known explosion risk to us. This entire time, the West Volunteer Fire Department did not know that the ammonium nitrate was in there. They were not aware that the ammonium nitrate could explode. They did not have any operating procedures in place for responding to a fire at this plant. Their plan, as was the plan for all fires, and generally is the plan for all fires for small volunteer fire departments, was to show up and put the fire out. And that is what they attempted to do. So immediately upon their arrival, the first due engine pulled up on the east side of the structure and pulled two attack lines off the engine and started to uh, spray water on the fire based on what they had available in their tank in that engine at the time. The problem with that is there's only a certain amount of water available in the engine and they need to hook up to a hydrant in order to continuously supply water to put onto the fire. So the second due engine went to go find the nearest fire hydrant, hook up to it, and begin to pump water to the first engine, who could then spray water onto the fire. The second due engine found the nearest fire hydrant. The problem was that fire hydrant was about 1,600 or so feet from the actual fire where they were pumping from. The second due engine only had about 1,000 feet of supply line available, which means they were going to be about 600 feet short which is obviously a problem because now they can't supply water to the engine that's actually putting water on the fire. So they had a choice to make. Stop fighting the fire with the first engine and bring the extra hose over and continue laying the hose to an effective range, or stop trying to fight the fire and focus on evacuating those nearby. They chose the first option. The first new engine that had arrived and was pumping water was a better engine with a better pump. So they decided that should be the one that should be doing the relay from the hydrant to the other engine, which then the second due engine would then take over attacking the fire, would take over suppression activities, while the first engine would be pumping to the second engine. Now, what would have made logical sense would be the, the engine drove to where the, the second engine had dropped the last of its supply line, hooked up from there, and then continued on into a place where they could continue to pump. That is not what they did. The firefighter driving the engine, instead of going to the end of the supply line, went back all the way to the fire hydrant and began to lay hose from there. 
We don't know why he decided to do that. I'm guessing it was because he became flustered by the sight of this now rapidly growing fire and forgot what he was supposed to be doing or had a misunderstanding that maybe he thought that the second engine hadn't actually laid their hose line out and they had just realized that they were going to be short, so they drove back, so he drove all the way there. It It's confusing. What we do know is that they didn't get any more water on the fire after that. So by this point, the fire had begun to spread well beyond just the northeast corner of the structure. It had spread all along the north wall and pushed well south further into the structure. Just a few minutes after their arrival, the smoke had gone from an opaque light gray and rapidly transitioned into a very black, very dark smoke. This indicates two possible things. One is a fire that is burning a lot of hydrocarbons, things like plastic or asphalt, which is possible considering the roof was covered with asphalt shingles and also there's a lot of random plastic in basically every building. But the other option is that it's not a well-ventilated fire. So likely at this point, it's a bit of both. It's a probably at least somewhat hydrocarbons because the asphalt shingles are going to burn extremely dark. That's just the color smoke is when it burns things like gasoline and oil and asphalt, things like that. But it's also extremely ventilation limited because this building didn't have a lot of windows. It didn't have a lot of doors. So the fire is going to burn extremely inefficiently because it doesn't have the oxygen it needs to burn efficiently. So you need a certain amount of oxygen, a certain amount of heat, and a certain amount of fuel to keep an, uh, a fire burning and to keep it burning efficiently. The more efficiently it burns, the clearer the smoke because smoke is left over incomplete combustion. It's basically things that have burned but haven't burned completely because one of the things was out of balance in the chemical reaction of the fire. So we're looking at an extremely dark smoke that has a lot of unburned fuel in it because when that smoke is very dark and very sooty, it can also burn. So we're having a lot of unconsumed fuel and a lot of hydrocarbons burning and melting and spreading along the ground. And this is where our other issue comes in. The giant plywood bin containing the ammonium nitrate was likely on fire at this point, which means the ammonium nitrate is starting to melt, and molten ammonium nitrate is significantly less stable and significantly more reactive to shock. But, as we talked about earlier, ammonium nitrate generally doesn't explode unless it's contaminated with something else. And that's where this dark smoke that's full of unburned fuel and full of hydrocarbons comes in. All of that unburned fuel, that, those hydrocarbons, are mixing with the molten ammonium nitrate and are contaminating it, making it less stable and more prone to explosions. And this is where we went from this is just a fire that happens to have ammonium nitrate nearby to this is going to be an explosion because, like I said, the building doesn't have a lot of ventilation. If the building had a lot of ventilation, the building had a lot of doors or a lot of windows or they had installed ventilation up high in the building, then it's likely that the fire would have had a lot of oxygen available, would have burned more efficiently, and would have kept all of those hydrocarbons, all of that soot, away from the molten ammonium nitrate and wouldn't have made it as reactive to shock. But, unfortunately, that's not how the building was built. It is now 7.42 p.m., give or take. It has been about five minutes since the first Dew engine was seen headed towards the fire. And the building 
is completely obscured by thick black smoke. The first two do engines are not getting any water on the fire because they don't have any water supply. And none of the other engines that are there are getting water on the fire because they don't have a water supply. No one has done a 360 of the building to see where the fire is, what exactly is burning, and what the risks are at this building. No one knows that there's ammonium nitrate inside or that that ammonium nitrate could detonate. And it's basically not looking very good for anyone. Then, at some point during this sequence between... 7.42 p.m. and 7.51 p.m., the smoke, all of that thick, black, sooty smoke, turned over to full flames. The entire building, from north to south, east to west, is engulfed in flames. Now, what this means is, we no longer have that thick, black, sooty smoke. There's still some smoke, because it's a fire, but it's not that really thick, billowing smoke. That means that something inside that building, possibly the ammonium nitrate, possibly a falling wall or ceiling, introduced a ton of oxygen into that building where all of that heat was being radiated inside and allowed it to reach flaming combustion because it had enough oxygen available to actually start burning things more efficiently. This rapid change from smoke to flames also had a change in the ammonium nitrate because it rapidly increased the amount of heat at the ammonium nitrate, melting more of it, making it even more unstable. It was then that the fire chief and the assistant chief of West Volunteer Fire Department realized that they were in a very, very, very bad spot, like they had no possible way of putting out this fire, bad spot. They were discussing the possibility of pulling back and allowing the fire to burn itself out rather than risk injury or death to fire personnel and focus on evacuating the nearby home, school, and nursing home. At around this same time, the West Emergency Medical Service was putting on a nighttime EMT class at their nearby building. Several of their students in the class were volunteer firefighters from nearby towns. Upon hearing the sirens and going outside and seeing the smoke, they made their way to the scene. They would not be there very long. Because remember our firefighter who went back to the hydrant instead of just going to the end of the hose line? He's headed back towards the fire laying hose. He would not make it back to the building. At 7.51 p.m., 14 minutes after the fire department was dispatched, 22 minutes after the fire was first discovered, the West Fertilizer Company building detonated. It was a fully involved structure fire. Flames the entire length of the building and then a massive detonation that sent a blast wave flying all around, and then the entire plant was obliterated. If this seems like few details, well, that's because there aren't many. The subsequent detonation killed 12 first responders at the scene and three more civilians nearby. Any first-hand accounts were lost the second the detonation occurred. This detonation also injured well over 250 people with injuries ranging from burns to abrasions to traumatic brain injuries. What we do know is the explosion created a crater 75 feet wide and 8 feet deep and caused a 2.1 magnitude earthquake locally. It is estimated that the force of the explosion was about 12.5 tons of TNT 
It damaged several hundred homes and completely obliterated the fertilizer plant, causing at least $100 million worth of damage. Several of the fire engines near to the detonation were shoved several inches in either direction, and it tore train track out of the ground and overturned a rail car full of ammonium nitrate, which did not detonate because it was not molten and not contaminated. So, normally, a fire investigation, you work backwards. You try to determine area of origin, then cause of the fire, then if there's an explosion, the reason for the explosion. But we're going to go a different way here, because I want to talk about the different potential scenarios for detonation, and then we will get into the origin and cause for this fire. So we know that the ammonium nitrate is what detonated. That much is obvious. What we don't know is why. There are three main theories, and I'm going to talk about them in order of what I think is most probable. The first scenario is the ammonium nitrate detonated first down in the bottom of the elevator pit. So we were talking about the couple of earlier, that's the, the elevator that brings the ammonium nitrate up to the top of it, dumps it in so that it can go to the different areas. Well, when it goes down, it goes down into a pit so that it can curve back up and it's not scraping the bottom and accidentally dumping it in the actual building itself. It is theorized that some of the molten ammonium nitrate could run down into the bottom of the pit. Then, a collapsible wall inside the structure would funnel significant amounts of ammonium nitrate down into the molten ammonium nitrate in the bottom of the pit, which started a deflagration to detonation transition exacerbated by the confinement of the concrete walls of the pit. So, basically, you have ammonium nitrate in the bottom of the pit. A wall falls inside, which then leaks ammonium nitrate down, more ammonium nitrate down to the pit, which causes a deflagration somehow in the bottom of this pit that then is confined by the concrete walls in the bottom, and it turns into a detonation which travels upwards and then travels across and hits the main pile of ammonium nitrate. But this theory has multiple problems. Number one, the pit had a cover over it which would require extreme radiant heat at floor level to burn away and open the pit. Now it's possible, because the whole building was on fire, because of the switch from the smoke to the fire, that that would be enough radiant heat at floor level to melt away the cover. But that's when we run into our second problem. The slope of the floor was away from the pit, meaning the ammonium nitrate from the main pile that's supposed to fall down into the pit would have had to flow uphill to then fall in the pit. And then we run into the third problem. There's no real reason why the detonation confined to the pit would propagate to the main pile outside the pit. There have been numerous ammonium nitrate explosions in which there was more ammonium nitrate nearby that did not detonate after a pile detonated. Toulouse-France explosion is a great example. Some of it detonated, some of it did not. They were in the same area, but they were separate piles, so and it didn't transfer between the two. So there's no reason why it would transfer from down inside this pit up, across, and into the main pile. It seems fairly unlikely that a small detonation in the elevator pit would cause the large explosion we see from the West Fertilizer Plant. So moving on to the second scenario. The second scenario is basically the failure of one of the walls causing the molten ammonium nitrate to fall into plastics and seed piles and then detonate somehow. I I don't see how. There's not really, just falling is not enough of a shock to get the ammonium nitrate to detonate, even if it is contaminated. So I'm not certain 
how this would work. I think it's slightly more feasible than the elevator one because it at least involves the main pile being shocked in some way, but it doesn't super add up. And that brings us to our last scenario, and most likely in my opinion. During the time of incomplete combustion we talked about, when the entire building was surrounded by that heavy, thick smoke and the fire and ventilation was really, really low, the molten ammonium nitrate on top of the pile became extremely contaminated and highly susceptible to shock and subsequent detonation. Following that time period of incomplete combustion, a hole opened somewhere and allowed for enough oxygen to reach the fire that it switched to efficient combustion. This heated up the ammonium nitrate in extreme amount and allowed it to off-gas oxidizers. The oxidizers and the rich, fuel-rich smoke above the file then ignited in the confined area above the bin and started a deflagration to detonation transition. This transition from a subsonic flame front to a supersonic flame front gave the molten ammonium nitrate the energy it needed to begin to detonate, which then gave the still solid pearls in the middle of the pile the energy they needed to detonate. This appears to be the most likely scenario that makes any sense with what was observed with the explosion. It places the detonation at the pile, moving from most sensitive to least sensitive, and explains why the entire pile detonated. It explains how we got the shock, it explains how the pile detonated, it gives us an actual scenario that you can logically follow from beginning to end. The other scenarios do not explain why the entire pile detonated, or give a at least a somewhat plausible shock to the system that would cause the entire pile to detonate. But all of these still have their problems. Like that last one still has a problem because it hasn't been proven that an explosive gas mixture above an ammonium nitrate pile can cause a deflagration to detonation transition and then detonate ammonium nitrate. We haven't proven that with testing. So it's still an unknown. And unless somebody wants to dump a bunch of money into figuring out why this happened, then it's likely to always remain an unknown. So that's an attempt to explain why the explosion occurred. But what about the fire? The origin of the fire has been placed somewhere in the seed room. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. That is the first place they see visible flames on that side of the building in the northeast corner. As the explosion destroyed the building, the witness state of Statement of the police officer is the only reliable data we have to place an area of origin, so we can comfortably say the area of origin is somewhere within the seed room. Where in the seed room, we don't know. We, we, don't, we don't know, we don't have the evidence available because the detonation exploded the whole building and blew away all our fire patterns and all of that. So that's the origin, and we can be fairly comfortable with that origin. But we need to talk about the cause, because... Well, there isn't one currently. Okay, there technically is one. I just disagree with it entirely. There are numerous potential causes inside this building. The electrical wiring, golf cart, front-end loader, many other electrical components. And without a doubt, many of these were heavily damaged during the fire and then really good and destroyed during the massive explosion. It's highly likely that all the pieces of this equipment could not reliably be evaluated purely due to the extreme amount of damage suffered by the detonation and the fire. All that being said, the ATF has released a cause. I'm not going to call it the cause, but a cause. The ATF has ruled this fire to be incendiary. Basically, someone intentionally set the fire. 
they have not released evidence as to how they came to this conclusion, they have refused to answer questions about it. And this is a problem. First of all, it appears they based this conclusion entirely on the fact they couldn't determine another cause, which seems like it would be fine if they had provided any reasoning as to how they could eliminate all the other causes in this building. But they haven't, and they absolutely refuse to. They keep citing that it's an open investigation. They also have to have some sort of evidence supporting an incendiary fire. So it's not just enough to rule out all of the accidental causes. That's fine. So if you have a fire in a house and you rule out, you know, extension cords and you rule out the power strips and you rule out the refrigerator and you rule out, like, spontaneous combustion, you rule out smoking. So the only thing you have left is an intentionally set fire. That's fine. You can, in theory, that's fine. But you have to have some sort of evidence supporting that it's an incendiary fire. You can't just say, oh, this is a set fire set by someone and it was this person. You have to have evidence supporting that. You have to have a witness statement or a positive uh, flammable liquid sample or even some form of motive. But the ATF for this fire has released none of that. Now, the only thing I have heard related to the investigation is there was potentially some teenagers seen running from the area. And that's just rumors that I've heard from other investigators I know that were involved with the investigation of the fire. And none of them seem to believe it. And I'm going to be quite honest, if I had a nickel for every time someone told me they saw teenagers running from a fire, I'd be a fairly rich man. And I am not a fairly rich man. Now, normally this wouldn't be a problem. The ATF can put out their garbage ideas of what the cause of this fire was with absolutely no evidence at all, and we can all point and laugh and ignore them. But this was a problem for a major reason. You see, the EPA had begun to mandate new rules related to storing ammonium nitrate, primarily that they be protected by sprinklers and in non-flammable containers. Almost immediately after the announcement of the arson finding by the ATF in May of 2016, announcement they did not brief the then-Obama White House or OSHA on, the EPA began to roll back the changes they had made or completely stopped them entirely in January of 2017. The EPA justified the stopping of the new regulations by basically saying that because someone set the fire, there was no need to have the regulations. But the problem with this is extremely obvious. The explosion had absolutely nothing to do with the cause of the fire. The explosion was a separate problem, a separate disaster entirely. So you have your first disaster, the fire, and then you have your second disaster, the detonation. The fire caused the detonation. The cause of the fire was not the cause of the detonation. They are two separate things. It doesn't matter how the fire started, it should not have detonated. Even if the ATF is right, and they can come up with some evidence saying that someone set this building on fire, the ammonium nitrate should not have detonated. The cause of the fire does not matter. At all. In any way. The ammonium nitrate should not have detonated. But no. We're going to use the excuse of, meh, it was arson, so it happened because of arson. And that's crap. That's a terrible idea especially because it's based on a finding of arson that has literally, and I mean literally, zero evidence to back it up. The ATF, to this day, to March 27th, 2022, refuses to answer any questions about the cause of the fire, about how they came to the conclusion that it was an incendiary fire. 
The only thing they say is there's a $50,000 reward for any evidence leading to an arrest in the investigation. The ATF's ruling on this has had far-reaching implications. For instance, the Chemical Safety Board made a recommendation to add fertilizer-grade ammonium nitrate to the risk management program and the list of regulated substances through OSHA. They didn't do that. It's still not on there, even after the Beirut explosion. Still nothing. There's been some changes in how the state of Texas handles and stores ammonium nitrate, but that's basically it. The Chemical Safety Board also requested that they add FGAN, so fertilizer-grade ammonium nitrate, to the list of highly hazardous chemicals, toxics, and reactives. It's not there. They requested all new storage to be non-flammable and be protected by sprinklers and have fire detection systems, and that hasn't been done. They wanted ammonium nitrate to be isolated from combustible materials. Also has not been done. Now, there are some of these requirements for ammonium nitrate. Some. But it's only if there's more than 2,500 tons of ammonium nitrate, which most fertilizer plants never, ever, ever come close to having on hand. The West Fertilizer Plant only had 40 to 60 tons of ammonium nitrate on hand. They had no reason, they had no legal requirement to report that they had the ammonium nitrate there. So, these are basically useless for this kind of stuff. In the end, this explosion hasn't really changed much in the storage of ammonium nitrate. Even with the add-on of the devastation that was the Beirut explosion, there still has been very little done with the storage of ammonium nitrate. Even after the Winston-Salem uh, fire just a few months ago, they still haven't changed anything. That one didn't explode, but it very well could have. And the ATF has really screwed the pooch on this one, on basically announcing a cause without providing any evidence for it. It's likely if they had provided some evidence for it, there wouldn't have been as much of a backlash. But it seems like most people have just kind of moved on from it. There was major backlash at the time, when they announced that it was arson and wouldn't tell anyone why, but with everything that's happened in the last, what, six years, they're basically in the clear and the investigation's still ongoing and they haven't arrested anyone. They haven't even put out a person of interest. So in the end, the town of West Texas put up a memorial park near the location of where the West Texas plant used to be in honor of of the 15 individuals who were killed in this explosion. And, unfortunately, because we refuse to make any changes to how ammonium nitrate is stored, despite the many, many detonations and the many, many deaths that have occurred because of poor handling of ammonium nitrate, it's likely that something like this will happen again in the future. And with that... We've reached the end of our episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Disastrous History, Disastrous, H-S-T-R-Y. Uh, you can follow me on TikTok, Disastrous History, spelled correctly. You can follow me on Instagram, Disastrous History. Uh, I think that's it. Oh, I have a Patreon. It's uh, Disastrous History. I have some exclusive episodes, and uh, I'm going to do some more uh, writing stuff. And I also now have a YouTube channel that I'm hopefully going to be able to make some videos for. It'll be interesting for you guys. I'm also going to try and put all the episodes up on the uh, YouTube. So if you like 
listening to podcasts on YouTube instead of on a podcast app. You can listen to it there. As always, I appreciate you guys. Thank you guys so much for listening. And stay safe. And remember to check your smoke detector batteries.